and welcome to the Bridges Between Us podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schenker. This week, we're talking with Dr. Lydia Zalowska. She is a psychiatrist and internationally recognized expert in adult ADHD and mindfulness-based therapies. She's a co-founder of UCLA's Mindfulness Awareness Research Center. Her work has been featured in Attitude Magazine, Time Magazine, The Boston Globe, and The New York Times. She is the author of two books, The Mindfulness Prescription for Adult ADHD and Mindfulness for Adult ADHD, A Clinician's Guide. I was diagnosed with ADHD at six years old. To say that discovering and learning about mindfulness at 20 years old changed my life would be an understatement. I discovered Dr. Zylowska's work specifically when I was in graduate school becoming a counselor, and her research was pivotal in shaping how I understand ADHD and the role mindfulness can play. There are hundreds of clients, students, and families that I've been able to help, and that effort is built on top of the foundation, which includes, pivotally, Dr. Zylowska's work. So, Dr. Z, I love the emails I get from your office, by the way, come from Dr. Z. I feel like I'm emailing with a superhero. Thank you so much for being here today. And like I was saying before we got started, you know, thank you so much for your work. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate that lovely introduction. You know, it's been such a um, wonderful thing for me to know that my work has inspired others that can really bring that to families, to students um, that are affected by ADHD. And um, I think that's really the power of this work that it kind of speaks for itself in, in how it can help others. Absolutely. And speaking of inspiration, I wonder if we could start by talking about what got you interested in the intersection between mindfulness and ADHD? Why did you begin to care about that and research it? Yeah, you know, I didn't set out to put the two together in my work. I, I kind of fell into it. Um, and I had two currents in my work. One of them was uh, an interest in um, holistic medicine, com complementary alternative medicine. And um, the other current was an interest in ADHD, which came later. So as a, um, as a psychiatrist in training, I um, was very interested in uh, traditional Chinese medicine, uh, acupuncture. I did a fellowship at the UCLA Center for East West Medicine. And that introduced me to a whole host of holistic approaches. Mindfulness was one of them. I fell in wow. love with mindfulness as a, as a resident um, or, or, or physician in training. I was you know, very stressed out myself and uh, um, the culture of medicine makes you just be go, go, go and kind of self-forgetting in the process. Uh, so when I actually had a chance to be in that fellowship, it created some space for me to experience these approaches firsthand. I had to, um, I mean, I had the opportunity to go to do some mindfulness trainings through the center for mindfulness at the University of Massachusetts. This is with John Kabat-Zinn. And um, it was, you know, life transforming for me. It was just very powerful um, creating that space to really just, you know, attune to yourself. And, you know, there are difficult moments, but there are also moments when you really see um, that there's a different way you can be with what's going on inside that um, creates this sense of freedom. Um, 
so so that was kind of one current for me, you know, really interested in uh, in holistic medicine with an, and focus on mindfulness specifically and mindfulness-based therapy. And then in my last year of training, I was working in the clinic for um, for women. This is a psychiatry clinic focused on women's mental health. And I happened to have kind of two patients soon one after another that were women with ADHD who were really struggling after having children. Um, so it re- what really struck me was that both of these women, you know, had strategies kind of made it, made it through their life after that point with, you know, doing okay. But when they became parents, it just became overwhelming and it was just, you know, too you know, very challenging to be not just responsible for yourself, but now for somebody else. And also being such a, you know, busy, you know, busy parents know this, you often don't have time for yourself. So whatever they were doing to sort of help themselves manage the stress or replenish or reboot their brain, you know, that was kind of gone. It wasn't so easily available. So I was struck that I really didn't know much about adult ADHD. I was trained as an adult psychiatrist, um, this was the time when it was, you know, there was just the beginning of awareness that a lot of kids with ADHD don't grow out of ADHD. They carry this on as uh, young adults and adults, you know, throughout their life. Um, and so in my training, I didn't have a lot of training in ADHD. And so it was sort of, you know, um, a moment of realizing I really have to understand this a little bit more. And during that time, I was also contemplating a research path and was looking for uh, uh, mentors or people that would um, be supportive of my research. And I did um, start thinking, I was thinking about mindfulness research and trying to figure out, you know, what group of uh, patients to work with. And as I was um, um, kind of having conversations with different faculty members, uh, I was able to meet Sue Smalley, who was a researcher in genetics of ADHD. And that kind of clicked because we were all, I was thinking mindfulness, had this new interest in ADHD. Um, she was at, at that phase in her career that was very um, interested in giving something back to the family she was working with. And so sure. sort of everything came together and clicked, but it wasn't, it was, it was serendipity in a way. And this was also a time when uh, a group of us at UCLA was becoming very interested in mindfulness and started the center uh, for mindfulness out of those discussions. So it was a, it was a kind of a fun time to be um, where I was in my career and in my training and having these different threads come together. Sure. Now, when you then dove into the research and saw the impact that mindfulness had with people who did have ADHD. Were you surprised or was it more so that you got the findings as you were doing the research and it was like, yes, I knew this would be it? Um, I was not surprised. I think there was a lot of thinking that went into even proposing a project and like you had to really explain in, in, in my uh, fellowship, why you're going to choose this versus this and what's the rationale, what's this theoretical construct of this. And there was some pushback initially, uh, which was not unexpected that, you know, how, how do you think it's gonna work? Mindfulness is 
um, you know, an approach, you're supposed to sit still, you're supposed to pay attention, and you asking people who can't sit still, can't pay attention to do that. You know, that's a setup for failure. And, um, you know, we I had to sort of practice explaining why you would do this. And so through could, that- could, I, you, could you give us that explanation? Like if, if somebody's listening right now, I'm so curious, like if someone's thinking, well, yeah, that does seem like those two things really don't go together. Like, yeah, somebody who has difficulty focusing their attention regulating their impulses and sitting still, you're going to ask them to, to sit still and focus their attention. That, that seems like that's really incongruent. Why, why would you even try and do that? Yeah. You know, and so I would always bring up um, an example from other parts of medicine. You know, when you have a broken leg and your muscle atrophies and it's weaker, what do you do? You do physical therapy. So you challenge them where the weakness is to make it stronger. So you can think of mindfulness training or meditation training that way. You take, you go where there is maybe a certain weakness, relative weakness, and it's just a matter of the dose. You know, if someone had a broken leg and let's say they have weakness in their leg, you wouldn't ask him to run a marathon, right? Um, so, but you, you, you do these very gradual exercises and build on it. So it's the same thing with mindfulness training. Uh, you don't ask somebody with ADHD to sit through 45 minutes, maybe not even half an hour session of, of meditation. That's That may be too hard, especially sure. for someone who's completely new to it. But you start with, you know, five minutes or maybe even less for people and, and really create um, a framework when it's okay to start where you can and just keep building on. And understanding that truly, Mindfulness practice is all about strengthening your capacity to focus your attention, to organize your thoughts and emotions, to relate with your inner world. So it really is this skill building uh, of the exact skills that folks who have ADHD struggle with the most, those executive functioning skills and emotional regulation skills. Yep. Very, yeah, very well put. It's very much about the things that make ADHD um, BADHD, which is the self-regulation difficulties when it comes to how you regulate your attention, your emotions, your actions. And that's where mindfulness can really be helpful on all these different levels. Um, and there's additional level of how you relate to yourself. You know, are you being uh, compassionate with yourself? Are you being, um, you know, able to connect with yourself in a way that's um, kind? as opposed to, um, you know, kind of the default that a lot of people develop, and that's maybe because of what they were surrounded with, or even, you know, sometimes people develop um, this critical voice just as a way to motivating themselves. So you start sort of examining, how do I relate to myself? How do I relate to my ADHD? Is this, you know, a relationship that I can improve on yeah. uh, through mindfulness? Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting when I think about the ways that we motivate ourselves and that critical voice, the way that we talk about ourselves. And something I've been thinking about recently is dopamine. So, right, we know that dopamine is the molecule of motivation, that dopamine being produced in our brain is what gives us the ability to act and that dopamine is created in anticipation of things um, when new experiences come up 
or we're exploring or they've done studies where they take rats they put them in a cage and the rat understands that when the light comes on then if they press a lever then food comes out and dopamine levels are at their highest the moment that the light comes on so it's this anticipation that triggers the dopamine and it has to be hopeful anticipation that the dopamine doesn't get triggered doesn't get activated if the rat doesn't believe they can actually press the lever. And so it's this interesting phenomenon how we motivate ourselves because ultimately we do it with negative reinforcement often, which is you know negative reinforcement versus positive reinforcement for anyone that's listening. Negative reinforcement is I do good thing and bad thing gets taken away, or I do good thing and bad thing doesn't happen. Positive reinforcement is I do good thing, I get good thing. Well, so often, what we do in order to create that hope, in order to create that anticipation for ourselves, is we think about all the bad things that we don't want to feel. And we criticize ourselves and we, we shame ourselves, uh, judge ourselves. Um, or we think about what might happen, the potential fa failures and rejections and judgments from others. And then we give ourselves a to-do list. We say, okay, well, now if I do this, then I won't feel that shame, disappointment, anxiety, grief, rejection. And then we use that as our hope. We use that as our anticipation to produce dopamine in our brain, to be motivated. The problem with that is that's not nearly as motivating as coming up with a hopeful story that's rooted in what we want to move toward and what we want to cultivate more of. That actually, I want to cultivate more inspiration. I want to cultivate more joy. I want to cultivate more love. And when we do that, when we actually motivate our, ourselves with stories of hope that are rooted in more of a positive reinforcement approach, we produce even more dopamine in our brain. And it's this funny irony because any of us with ADHD, we don't produce and hold dopamine in our brain the same way as someone who's neurotypical. And so we really need to be intentional about how we're producing dopamine for ourselves and yet we can be so critical of ourselves we can which can actually limit the dopamine that we're creating yeah no i'm it's interesting you, you bring up dopamine you know one of the most um i think reliable ways of increasing dopamine is also curiosity right like getting into a curious stance and i think that's where mindfulness is really helpful with ADHD. that uh, when you shift to, or encourage, you know, you, when you shift to the curious stance, um, anything that can feel aversive uh, or something you're avoiding, like, oh, I don't want to deal with this, or I don't want to um, think about this, you know, or maybe it's something that's provoking um, a sense of shame or embarrassment. But if you are able to um, shift into saying like, well, let's be curious here. Like what, what's mm. happening for me? What is, um, you know, what, what kind of thoughts or feelings do I have? Can I be curious about all of this and not judge myself that this is here? It's more of, you know, just it is what it is. Can I notice? Can I uh, learn from what is? Um, that's really a nutshell of what mindfulness practice is about. And I love how that can be done, you know, anywhere, anytime. So it, especially in those moments during, you know, in the course of a day when, you do feel either overwhelmed or stuck in some way that you can shift to that curiosity. Um, 
And that, that really changes the relationship that then you have to the task um, and creates opportunities then to say, well, maybe I can do this differently. And then, then, so then you engage novelty, another dopamine booster uh, with that. Um, and, you know, it, and, and part, of the, part of this too is, is recognizing um, how do I feel when I criticize myself? Like what happens to my body, mm-hmm. right? And how do I feel when I have more of that hopeful, um, more positive approach? to the task like it being being um the side of like inner scientist right like what happens to me like do you feel myself like drain of energy or do i feel myself actually you know like my shoulders go up a little bit because i feel a little bit more empowered um and that becomes really you know i think a powerful way to then know you know what what can i do to help myself versus um you know, what am I doing that's actually maybe pulling me down? So can I, can I lean into curiosity so that I can empower myself with more of the truth of what's happening and who I am so that I can make decisions to really build the life that I want? Yep. And, you know, we, we all have habits and we have just automatic ways we do things. So that curiosity is very helpful to just even be curious about these habits and not that that they will stop from happening, um, but that you have a chance to create some distance from it and have that, you know, maybe doing things differently. Uh, you know, and the first thing that is that you can do is just say, oh, here's procrastination coming up. Here it is again. You know, I don't really want to do this. I don't feel like doing this. Um, I, you know, I'm I, I'm almost voting with my feet. I'm going over there to do something else because this work I'm supposed to be doing, I, I don't want to do. And so, as as you become more aware of that, um, then you have a chance to to do something about it a little differently. You could, you know, just tell yourself. Um, let me be more curious. What's what's making me stuck? What am I afraid of? You know, usually there are negative emotions that drive procrastination. Uh, is maybe it's a lack of knowing where to start. So just like a general sense of overwhelm. Uh, maybe it is you know I already know I'm going to fail. Uh, maybe it is just that I'm tired. You know, I have like really low energy. I didn't sleep well. So just looking at my you know what I have to do my to do list is just makes me feel tired even more. Um, And so, so you can make decisions, you know, what is, what's the right solution in this moment? And that right solution may be different in this moment than another moment of procrastination. Um, You know, if some, sometime it may be, I really have to kind of sit for a moment in, in, in reflection and, and examine my fears and maybe coach myself through it. It may be that I really need to break down this big task. So using the you know strategy of chunking and kind of, I know this, but I haven't really done it yet because a lot of people know what helps them, but they haven't done it. So like pushing yourself through that inertia of saying, okay, I'm going to start diagramming what I have to do, maybe make a mind map or something like that. It will help me figure out those little chunks that make it doable. 
or maybe the solution will be I need to talk with someone. I'm I, it's I'm just stuck right now. I I know that it's too hard for me in this to do it on my own. Um, and you know sometimes it may be okay. I need to take a break. I'm not going to tackle this thing right now. I need to do something else. Um, and all of those can be decisions that you make um, in combination with starting from a place of mindfulness, of exactly. really connecting with yourself and asking yourself what you need, and then being empowered to make a decision that you think is best to meet that need. Yeah. Um, I, I offer one example, which I do, and I think many Please. people might, might relate to is, you know, if, if I'm tired, for example, or don't really feel like doing um, tedious work on the computer and, um, for me, that's maybe looking through lots of notes and having to review them. Um, for my residents that I work with, I, you know, I do just find myself, I maybe get through one task and then I feel like I really need to check my phone, right? And then I do another task, another one, one another note, another document, and then I need to go get a water because I just, it's so then I, you know, at that moment, I would say, this is really hard. You know, this is, this is the, the worst task for me right at this moment because I'm depleted and I really, there's sort of a timeline, but I, and I have to get through it. Um, and so there is the first thing I think that is helpful is to be just acknowledging that this is hard. You know, like this is hard. Um, but then you know, there's constraints of the situation. You still have to have it done. Uh, so what I would do is just be kind of allowing myself to take these little breaks. Um, okay, I, I do need to maybe go to a different website for a moment, but I know I'm not going to get lost in it. It's my little relief, and then I'm going to come back. It's hard to do, but when you have enough mindfulness um, skill built in, then you can give yourself these little breaks in ways that otherwise may have automatically without awareness. And then you sort of overdo them, right? You spend too much time going and being distracted or you spend too much time browsing other websites. Um, but you could kind of acknowledge like, you know, it's hard for me to just be focused on this through this whole next hour. So I do see my need to just have these little distractions, but I can manage them and still keep coming back. And I love so much that you are highlighting the importance of care, compassion, curiosity, because I know for me, when I first really started learning about mindfulness and practicing mindfulness, it got a lot harder before things got easier, which is I had spent so much of my life not connecting with my inner world that then once I did and I was paying attention, I was noticing uh, a lot of patterns of ways that I would show up and do things that really I wasn't proud of. I noticed a lot of things within me that hurt. Um, and I, I would blame myself for it. And I would judge myself thinking I wasn't doing things right. Um, and it's powerful, this, this framing that you're offering, that when you're exploring mindfulness, when we're talking about mindfulness, when you're practicing mindfulness, it's not just about attention. It's not just about seeing things. It's also about the quality of your attention. It's the quality of your awareness that you're paying attention to your inner world and you're doing so as if you're a friend or someone that you love. 
uh, and you're bringing that compassion and that understanding to your experience because ultimately judging and shaming ourselves just doesn't result in better outcomes for us. It just adds more pain. Yeah, I mean, that, that is often so healing for people to um, bring more compassion, self-compassion to, you know, any type of uh, kind of inner work, self-reflection. Um, and mindfulness, you know, when I talk about mindfulness, I often talk about these two aspects of it, which is attention, as you said, but there's also this attitude piece or kind of this, you know, what kind of um, stance you bring to how you're paying attention. So it's some people say loving attention, or kind attention, uh, or non-judgmental, like the attitude when you when you do mindfulness. And it's you know it's it always kind of struck me why do we have to do that? Like can't just attention be enough? I think if you're looking at a beautiful scenery, there is not you don't personalize it. There might not be some negative judgments. We are more likely to be in that pure state of open attention. But when it's when we start doing that with ourselves or maybe people around us, then it gets complicated, right? Sure. And these, these negative judgments really amp up. And um, so it's just such a key um, to be intentional about keeping uh, that kindness, that compassion, that openness as part of your practice. And especially when it comes to being with negative emotions that make it kicked up as you practice. Um, you know, shame is one of them, embarrassment, but even anger or a fear, we often don't want those feelings. And so we judge ourselves for having them. And it's just so critical to um, help yourself step back from those judgments. You can actually allow those feelings to come up. Um, and then, you know, mindfulness can be very hard as you were saying at the beginning. Yeah. Um, because, you know, oftentimes those, uh, when you start, um, on the journey of self-awareness, you do find places that, um, you're not proud of, you know, or maybe they're just, uh, things, you know, um, you were doing the best you can to sort of make sense of situations and, and maybe cope with them, but, as you increase understanding and understanding of ADHD, understanding of yourself, you see it in a new light and then you can feel like, oh gosh, why did I do this? Or, you know, uh, so it's important both to have this openness and then judgment as things come up so you can actually learn from them, but to also practice forgiveness uh, to yourself. And I know that sometimes resonates with people, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and there may be time in your life when it resonates and other times, it, you know, it doesn't, but it's, it's even being curious about that. Is there anything I need to forgive myself for? What comes up for me when I even open up that possibility? Yeah. And that like so many things, forgiveness is a practice that it, it takes a, it takes an action and that that action is is starting from a place of mindfulness and you have this beautiful paragraph in your book where you say attention is our window to the world both the world outside of us and the world within us it is attention that allows certain information to stream in and become part of our conscious experience and you go on to say that 
attention shapes the function and the structure of our brains. Ultimately, where we place our attention and how other things grab our attention shape our lives. Can you explain to us how exactly our attention shapes the structure of our brain, especially folks with ADHD? Yeah, you know, um, we know that attention is a limited resource. Uh, you can't pay attention to multiple things all at once. I mean, we may have a sense that a lot of things are coming in, but usually, you know, to really be attending to something, um, you are, there's a sense of, you know, you placing it on one thing and you can't be placing it on the other thing at the same time. You know, if you're looking at your phone, there may be a lot going on around you, but because your attention is very engaged in that phone, you might not know what's going on. You know, you've, we've seen people, you know, falling into fountains or by being that engaged with their attention sure, in sure. one way and being so oblivious to something else. Okay, um, I've, I have never seen any of these videos of people falling in fountains, but I know after this interview now, I know exactly what I'm Googling. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, it just shows you the power of attention. It's like when you're in a certain, if you focus on something, that's your world. That's what your experience is. That's what your life is about in that moment. And so, um, you know, that really speaks to also habits of paying attention, like how you're paying attention and where you're putting it, that you can either be, um, you know, flexible with it and maybe have broad experiences or you can be pretty narrow in how you are approaching certain situations and that that you know that gets into like habits and what you notice in relationships and you know maybe in uh in certain um ways you know you will respond to the same stress or the same way because same things are grabbing your attention so there's just so much about like you know, the fact that we have attention and the fact that we um, is so critical to how we navigate through through our world, I think it's I think it's still something we all need to realize um, a sure. little bit more how, you know, how critical that is to everything we do, including our well-being and relationships and so forth. But on the brain level and the neuroplasticity, when we talk about neuroplasticity, we Please. know that um, you know, our brain networks can um, um, can activate uh, depending on where we put our attention. Okay, so where you put attention, typically, how it, 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 there is a correlation with that to uh, what is happening at the brain level, which neurons are engaged, where is the blood flow happening, and so there is a this this recognition that you know, our attention and our neuronal circuits are, are in sync in terms of, you know, what we're doing. And certainly when it comes to ADHD, our attention is not always, we're not always in control of our attention. So it may, you know, be grabbed more easily by things. The sustained attention is more difficult, but it doesn't mean that you don't have any power to control attention. You do. So there is, you know, there is something that can still be um, strengthened so attention can still be strengthened and your power to choose or return to something is, is there. And the more you have attention placed in a certain, you know, done in a certain way, then corresponding to certain networks and, and neurons and, and brain states, that becomes strengthened. So, we're, you know, 
where are your habits of attention will also correlate to what gets strengthened in the brain. So that's the idea of neuroplasticity that through um, attending to something, you will strengthen the corresponding networks. And then that by itself can have impact on how easy it may be to pay attention to that. If that makes sense, the sort of circular um, relationship. So if I decide to start practicing mindfulness and I never have, and I do it for a certain amount of days and a certain amount of time, um, is there a point where there actually begin to be structural changes in my brain? The question of structural changes, it's different. And um, we don't have a good answer for that because we have we haven't done the research for that long with mindfulness practice. We do know that people that are, for example, Buddhist monks who practice a, a lot for many years um, do show some structural changes in the brain. And so um, there is this you know, understanding that it's possible, but we don't have those prospective studies to, to say that for certain. Um, and so that question is still out from a scientific standpoint, but we do know that functional changes in the brain can happen fairly quickly, even with fairly uh, minimal training. So, um, you know, um, this is work by Dr. Amisha Jha, um, who looked at um, sort of training of working memory, looking that, look, uh, they found sort of a sweet spot of about 12 minutes a day for about eight weeks, you know, improved performance and working memory. And then there's also corresponding changes often and then kind of how easily the brain is activating. Um, so it's, it's, it gives us hope that it, you don't have to be, um, you know, um, this, you don't have to be a monk, you don't have to do hours and hours of meditation to start seeing benefits. Um, and there's also some early work uh, from, um, uh, this is work in uh, Dr. Davidson, Richard Davidson's lab, who's a big name in mindfulness world, that um, the informal practice, which is um, the practice um, that you know, brief mindfulness shifts in the course of daily life versus having what's called formal practice of sitting down and doing a formal meditation, that the informal practice, at least for some people, seem to have the same benefits as doing formal practice. Again, very early research, but it's something that I have found clinically uh, very, um, very important for, um, for those with ADHD that you know, maybe after a period of doing some formal practice or maybe doing some retreats and some people even without it, when they do little shifts into mindfulness throughout the day, they have lots of reminders or maybe engaged just for a few minutes, that itself has benefits. People already start noticing differences after several weeks of doing that, um, that they're just more, more present, more aware, calmer, Oftentimes, even if you just were to start with, you know, brief breath awareness, um, that those things can have benefits. Whether that, you know, translates to your brain is rewired, I think that's a big jump, big leap. I don't think the brain is rewired, but you do start retraining these cognitive habits already. Um, so then you have more access to um, more control of attention and 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 
things become a little bit more automatic to remember the mindful stance. Got it. So the research right now is still so young around the impact of mindfulness practice on our brain structurally, uh, particularly mm -hmm. with folks with ADHD. Um, though okay. we do know that mindfulness practice over many, many years among folks like Buddhist monks uh, can have structural changes in the brain where those brains at least are structurally different than folks who do not practice mindfulness. And what we do know is that it doesn't take a whole lot of time of actually practicing mindfulness, either formally or informally, before you really notice a difference in brain activity so that it can, they can see that different areas of the brain are activated and we're using different areas of the brain and in performance tasks. So how well I remember things or how well I might perform on certain assessments or things that can really show me that I'm performing at a higher level. And those sort of shifts that we see in activity or performance on tasks, that can happen pretty quickly. Yep. Yeah, and I, I would just have a, a caution here that with ADHD, we know ADHD is not one uniform condition. I mean, there are different subtypes. You know, there's an attentive type, there's a hyperactive impulsive, and then one of the most common is the combined type. So people with ADHD can look different depending on what symptoms they mostly have. And there's also within each category, there are people that have more mild symptoms and some that have severe symptoms. So I think it's, it's very individualized how easy it will be to engage with mindfulness and then perhaps how long it takes to have to reap some of those benefits. And, and also depends on, you know, um, maybe modifications that you bring to the mindfulness practice. So if, you know, if there's a lot of um, hyperactivity, it may be the focus on informal practice or mindful movement. So you can um, train mindfulness utilizing some release of through movement of the hyperactivity or restlessness uh, sure. could be more engaging and therefore you know you you can have more benefits because you're able to practice. So there's all these you know things to consider when you're working with someone with ADHD who who says should I do mindfulness you know will that improve my symptoms? I think um, it's often a nuanced question that you know, for me, the first thing is how much are you struggling right now? How severe are the symptoms? How urgent it is to try to make a change? Um, and, and, you know, for someone who has severe symptoms, maybe is failing school or having trouble at work, um, I would recommend medication at that point and say, we, we're going to start here. And we'll also look at um, the other conventional treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy, other piece would be looking at, you know, how are you in terms of your lifestyle, because that can have an impact. And, and, and as part of the lifestyle, let's start looking at, you know, your triggers for stress, um, also your, your habits, and then bring mindfulness into that um, to, to start creating uh, skills, right, and, and create uh, ability that perhaps you didn't know you had in, term, in terms of your attention or or um, self-regulation, how you are with your emotions and, and, and um, you know, making choices that are actually helpful uh, uh, throughout the day in managing ADHD or just life in general. So, so I just wanna, you know, for, for each person, 
um, it's a unique combination of tools that will help them. And that's that's such a powerful point um, because when parents or educators are thinking about their children who have ADHD, it can be really stressful to think about what the right thing to do is for their kid. Um, and the same thing for adults who are struggling with any mental health disorder, but including ADHD, they can feel this tension and struggle and stress around what is the right thing for me to do. And ultimately, uh, the right thing to do depends on the person, depends on that person and their particular context to figure out what are the tools that, that you need in order to navigate your life specifically. And that this isn't about villainizing medication. Um, it's not about saying that um, nutrition is the only answer or that certain cognitive practices are the only answer, that mindfulness is the only answer, that medication is the only answer. It's about us expanding our narratives to understand that when we're struggling, when we're having a hard time, it's about connecting with our needs and exploring all of the tools to figure out which are the right ones for us. Though when it comes to ADHD, the piece I struggle with is within that, the narratives popularly within society for a long time really were centered mostly around medication. And we know particularly in the early 2000s, the vast majority of people who had ADHD who were receiving any type of treatment were only receiving medication. And that went in to, from 2005 to 2012, it was something like over 80% of children who were receiving any type of treatment for ADHD were only receiving medication as compared to receiving behavioral therapy or a combination of behavioral therapy and medication. And ultimately that's because, you know, medication can be more accessible uh, in all areas of the country where therapists can be hard to find or where insurance might not pay as readily for behavioral therapy. And ultimately by having conversations like this, by uh, having books like yours, we get to expand the narrative and expand our understanding of what, are our possibilities for yeah. really treating ADHD and the difficulties that come with it? Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point that you just made that, you know, we have over medicalized ADHD in a sense in terms of our, our, of our thinking about it uh, and our approach to it, this overemphasis on medication. Um, and that's, you know, I think, a big struggle for parents uh, when they have children with ADHD. There's, you know, uh, understandably and um, and you know for good reason. There's a maybe desire not to do medications, and I think there should be caution with children, even more so than with adults, to consider medications because the brain is developing. Also, the, the child often is. Um, you know, in a relationship with their parents and their family structure, what's going on around them. So you don't want to just point the finger on the child and say, here's the pill to fix a problem that's much more, more systemic. And mm. often the child is just reacting. There may very well be ADHD, but perhaps it would not be as severe if you were to address whether it's lifestyle factors, conflict in the family, maybe some trauma that's been happening uh, underlying. So I think especially for children and, and teens, it's so important to to have a broader this this view of, of ADHD, both within a person and systemically. Um, 
And also it's helpful to think of phases of treatment. I think sometimes when a child's really struggling, a medication may be an answer right then, but then hopefully you can work to minimize medications over time and think of skill building. So you, you're not just stopping there. You, you, you really invest into building um, skills and or maybe help with relationships that are happening at home. So then later on, you could peel back the medication. And, you know, for some people that may be possible. For some people it might not be. You know, medication can be a big part of their treatment because we do know um, that the brain and the neurotransmitters are involved in ADHD too. So it's having that openness about these different tools and that, you know, different tools at different times may be needed. Uh, so you're not stuck with like just one thing. And, you know, I, especially I see that with when I, in my work with adults, you may see adults who as children were put on medications and didn't want to do it as teens, but then come back around to it as adults, but they also have lots of other tools. By then they're really involved in mindfulness and therapy and understanding. Um, and then I also see kids that were never put on medications and then you know, as part of their growing up and kind of self-advocacy, they say, I want to try it now because I understand it as a, you know, I've, I've have all these tools and tricks, but I'm still struggling. So it's just, you know, I think it's important not to get um, for, uh, this is, a, I guess I'm speaking to clinicians uh, in many ways now, but it's not to be, um, you know, wedded to one way for, um, for, for one treatment for ADHD and for patients also to, or for those with ADHD to um, be empowered to advocate for themselves and having a dialogue of saying, you know, this worked for me before, but it's maybe not working for me now. I want to try something else or, you know, I want to do more than um, just medications. I really want to have access to these other tools. Um, and when we're talking about those other tools, it's so important that you brought up relational and environmental context. But it's another thing that we don't necessarily have a lot of conversations about with ADHD is that ADHD is really a description of a set of symptoms and that someone can show up with inattention and hyperactivity and distractibility. And really at the root of it is anxiety or someone can show up and with inattention, hyperactivity, distractibility, and it can be trauma. And ultimately, it's important for us to understand that in order to seek treatment for anything that we're struggling with, we have to make sure that we're finding providers that we that we trust who can help us explore and identify the, the core of what we're being challenged with. But also, we need to expand our understanding of what our human needs are, that at our core, we're wired for connection and belonging. And that when we don't get the level of connection and attachment that we need in childhood, that impacts how our brains develop and our brain chemistry. Uh, and that sometimes can look like that the trauma that comes from that can look like ADHD. And we know that not having that can exacerbate the difficulties with ADHD, that they've done studies with monkeys where they take them out of their social group and they socially isolate them and they see that the dopamine receptors in their brain actually deteriorate the stress. And yet when they put those monkeys back into the group, as long as the monkeys aren't being bullied, 
the dopamine receptors come back. So whether we're kids or we're adults, we also have to understand that it's not just about fixing how chemicals are distributed within our brain based on what we put in our body with nutrition or medication or even how we move our body with exercise and how that impacts us neurochemically. It's also about our relationship with ourself, our identity and our relationships with others. Yeah, that I mean, the, the need for connection and for being understood is so huge, I think, for all of us. And I think especially with ADHD, because you, you know, I often hear stories of people feeling um, misunderstood and, and, and um, misinterpreted if you have ADHD. You know, you have certain intention, but comes across differently, you're being judged. Um, and, you know, that certainly comes in with, with how parents and children can have a good match or not a good match. And um, especially if, you know, there is a parent doesn't have ADHD and is, is um, you know, um, faced with a child with ADHD, then it may just feel, you know, I don't understand what they're doing. There, and a lot of judgments that this is a willful, difficult behavior. Um, and so there can be a lot of frustration build up in those relationships. So there's such a need uh, for, you know, for education uh, around ADHD um, for parents, because the more parents can, can model that curious, mindful, compassionate stance, the more the children can uh, then respond with this idea of being seen, being connected to, and um, that's something that can then child can carry forward in their lives, this experience of being seen and connected. And, and that's, you know, if, if that was missing when someone is growing up, then um, mindfulness kind of offers a chance of sort of reparenting yourself. <laughs> yeah. Of creating that space for yourself um, and, and almost like leaning, you know, leaning into and saying, well, how am I? What's going on? Um, how can I sort of just understand, even though I may not understand from the first glance of what's going on? That's, you know, what an ideal parent would do. Of course, you know, if parents are listening, no parent is ideal all the time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And it's, it's such a powerful point that you make about mindfulness being an opportunity for reparenting ourselves, that ultimately, no matter what our childhood was like, we had needs that went unmet at certain moments because no human being is going to be able to catch all of our needs possible because we're the only one that's in our body. We're the only ones who could possibly be aware of our needs all the time. Uh, and so it's totally normal for every single child to have moments where there are times when they got hurt or they felt unseen or they felt rejected even. Um, the question is really like, the depth and duration of those sort of moments and what kind of relationships did that child have throughout their life with their caregivers? Did, was there enough trust there and secure attachment where those really were just moments of emotional injury or was it more substantial trauma? But ultimately all of us in our childhood had at least some of those small moments and there we carry that emotional trauma within our bodies. Um, and in order to heal that, we need to be able to bring that healthy, loving attention that we would get in a healthy 
trusting attachment relationship with a parent. And as you're pointing out, the really beautiful thing is there's many ways to do that. You could do that with friendships or with a romantic partner. Uh, and maybe this is somebody that you get to be vulnerable with and share your deepest emotional self and they communicate back acceptance, and empathy. And that's incredibly healing to get that as human beings are wired for connection. And you can do that same thing for yourself, that you can bring that same curious and loving attention to your emotional experience and heal any emotional wounds that you've carried as well. Yeah, I think that that can be tremendously empowering to feel like I have something um, that I know I can fall back on when I'm having a difficult moment. So like, you know, knowing that um, no matter what life throws me, I can bring mindfulness to it. I can bring, you know, self-compassion to it. I can maybe sit through it and not necessarily react out of it. Um, you know, for some people, it also may be journaling. Um, that's another way I, you know, or, or if it's not journaling, some sort of express expression through arts or um, that can help you as you allow yourself to feel the suffering that then you can express it in some way. Um, sure. Certainly, you know, therapy is one way also to do it uh, for some people, their spiritual beliefs can provide a container as well, a place where they can feel safe. Um, and so I, I think it's finding what, you know, what are the places or what are the ways that you can feel safe and seen and vulnerable um, and, and practicing, um, you know, connecting with that space um, on a regular basis because- sure. And uh, in, in if you if you do, you get to really know yourself. And oftentimes what you learn is is not all these bad things about yourself, but you start kind of appreciating yourself. Like at first it may feel like I don't want to go there. Those places are tough. Um, yeah. But as you stay with the process, as, as so, you know, with mindfulness practice over time, people do feel more relaxed in their own body. They're more comfortable with who they are. They, you know, they're, um, have that sense, you know, I'm, I'm good overall with all the kinks and all the things that I am imperfect. I'm, I'm fine. Um, and that's such a key for ADHD because you do continuously, uh, have these moments, you know, ADHD usually doesn't go away completely. So you still may have these moments of, I get in my own way or I frustrate myself or frustrate somebody else. But if you develop that core sense of, you know, I'm okay, and I I have more ease with who I am, and I'm more at ease with what ADHD is and how it shows up, and I have some tools uh, to deal with it, and other times the main tool is just acceptance, um, then it's, you know, it's a different way of going through life. Yeah. You know, over the years through my mindfulness practice, I certainly notice that I'm able to pay attention in conversations such as this or when reading a book or within any tasks that I'm doing. I'm also able to remember things more effectively. I'm able to connect with people more deeply and feel emotions more deeply. Absolutely. And even more important than that is in the moments where I do forget, 
or in the moments when I am really inattentive or do get distracted or my mind does some funny thing that I'm able to see it and like love that aspect of myself too. Like, oh, look, there's another like expression of who I am. And isn't that so funny that that came up in that way? And by relating with it in this sort of curious and forgiving way, I'm able to learn from it. Like, oh, that, that keeps coming up here. You know what? Maybe, maybe I need this. Um, but what doesn't happen is that I get stuck in shame or judgment which certainly used to happen. And then what is kind of ironic is by getting caught in that shame and judgment and beating myself up, I then end up becoming more stressed and more forgetful and more inattentive. And so really it's about being able to forgive myself over and over again by just continuing to care about who I am, even if I show up in a way that I believe that I shouldn't have so that I can more often really show up as the person that I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really nice way of, of kind of putting that relationship. And, you know, we're talking about the, the difficulties of ADHD. Um, and at the same time, it's also important to think about um, whether it's ADHD derived or just a person's um, yeah. um, individual strengths, right? or things that are really great about them. Because there's, especially, you know, and that's true in, in mental health, there's such a, a focus on what's wrong, on the negative, you know, what needs fixing, uh, that sometimes we get um, over-focused on that. And don't think about what's working right now. You know, what is good? What are some of these strengths that you can really appreciate about yourself? Um, and, you know, there is, definitely in the ADHD world, um, the, the, the discussion of the gift of ADHD and, you know, how people may be more creative or spontaneous, that sometimes is controversial. People say, well, you know, ADHD is no gift. And so it's like, you know, you can be polarized on each side, but the truth is usually, this is what mindfulness always teaches you, but the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? Um, that there may be these struggles, there re there's a real pain that comes with ADHD. But there's also, you know, potential strengths that come from the struggle or actual kind of gifts that um, your ADHD brain is, is, is presenting to you in terms of, you know, being able to maybe bounce different ideas at the same time. I often see people being uh, really naturally um, able to see big picture, um, kind of good integrators of a big picture. They might not know how to go about executing the big picture because of the details involved and the sequences. But starting to kind of, you know, being, that's a curiosity sense, being curious about how am I? What's the ADHD like? What's the non-ADHD like? Uh, what is the strengths? What are the weaknesses? Um, I think the ADHD focus often happens for people when they still learn about ADHD. Um, and they become very invested in understanding it. And after some time, I think it's also helpful to say, well, you're not just ADHD though. Like what else is about you that is either hard or great, you know? Um, so you start also developing some space even from the label of ADHD, um, which can be so helpful at first when you just never knew about ADHD or maybe never really understood it. Um, but over time, there's this sort of the, the growth perspective. You, you know, you can maybe put the label behind in some ways. Sure. So 
I wonder if you could share with us, like I'm curious, if somebody comes to you and they, they're an adult, they have ADHD, they've been diagnosed and they say, I'm doing okay in my life, but I really would like to sort of level up my life. I, I, I'd like to really develop more of my strengths. I would like to learn how to increase my attention, maybe my self-regulation skills. What, what kind of resources or practices do you typically first introduce folks to if they've never heard of mindfulness before? Yeah. Well, it, it depends on sort of how much time I have to, with the person. So if it's someone I might see on a regular basis, then we would practice in our meetings some brief mindfulness practices. And I think that the you know mindfulness of breathing is so critical, such a key practice to um, most meditation approaches. It's such a um, you know always available type of a practice because you, your breath always follows you. It's always with you. Yeah. And so um, you know learning that um, to me is is a key practice, and it's um, you know a practice that also has this built-in regulation piece because you can change your breathing to be deeper and longer and that has physiological benefits but even just starting noticing where you you know how fast you're breathing uh in different situations as a kind of even a measure of of stress or or activation you know how how you're doing just as a way to say oh this is that little you know signal that tells me how my body's doing so to me, that's often um, where there's a lot of value even starting there. Um, and then, you know, we would then progress to um, just being curious of different places you can put attention, not just the breath, but, you know, uh, things out, outside of yourself. And that's the classic practice of five senses or mindful eating when you connect with sounds, uh, sights, you know, maybe texture of things. Um, um, you can, you can notice how a sense of touch feels. Maybe when you have a pet, you're petting your pet and kind of just even noticing that. Um, so starting to be playful and curious about your attention, where it goes, where you can place it. Um, and, and, and then progressively, you know, bringing it to things that are not so easy to pay attention to, like the stream of your thinking or what emotions are happening in your body in the moment and how to relate to it without you know a reflex of either pushing it down or maybe you know overreacting out of it so over involved in the emotion or maybe not involved at all by suppressing it so finding that way of how to be with an emotion but with some space to it so that there's a kind of a progression to how people can learn mindfulness but so that's how i, I would work with them you know individually uh, but there's lots of other tools to even kind of understand uh, what it is. So there, you know, articles about mindfulness, and there's lots of apps these days that um, are actually very ADHD friendly because they're often start in very short practices. Some of them may have little videos, which is for visual learners are very helpful. Um, I'll mention a couple, but there's lots of other ones like Headspace, Calm. My life is is another one that's a used to be known as uh, stop breathe and think, um, and <clears throat> there's 
you know, also an app that actually focuses on ADHD and multitude of tools for ADHD, but also has mindfulness in it called Inflow. So there's there's just a lot, you know, a lot of different tools out there. But as just as everyone is different, you know, giving yourself permission to say, I'm going to try a tool like an app and see how it sounds. People can be very particular, like, I don't like that voice. Or, sure. you know, this is, uh, I like maybe just a little bit of instruction and then being on my own. Or maybe I did like a lot of guidance at the beginning and then I just found that's not as helpful. Um, so that's a way to explore, you know, and, and of course there's books, you know, my book, for example, is one way if somebody is new to mindfulness, they can check it out and see if it resonates. And I've got to tell you, your book is really beautifully put together. You know, I, I sometimes will read some books and get frustrated with feeling like they're going on and on and on over explaining something or using big words and they don't have to. Um, or sometimes, uh, you know, particularly books with mindfulness, it can be a long exploration into the, the concept of what mindfulness is without introducing the practice. And some books I find over rely on it being a practical application without really introducing conceptually. And I found your book to be really a beautiful balance of introducing stories of how mindfulness can help people informally within their life and what some specific formal practices could be, and just an exploration of concepts and, and definitions. It's really easy to read and really accessible. And one of the metaphors that we've used in this conversation that keeps coming up for me that seems helpful with what we're talking about in terms of just getting started with mindfulness is approaching with the same sort of curiosity that we're often in, encouraged to approach physical exercise, that Everybody likes exercising in different ways that maybe you might go to a yoga class or a cycling class, or maybe you'd go and you'd lift weights. And there are all of these different apps and websites and communities and books to go to. And it's really about exploring and understanding that just like if you haven't ever gone to the gym before, if you go to the gym, um, the, the first couple of days, you might be kind of sore um, and you might not be able to be in there for an hour and a half like some of the other people are. and that's okay. And that over time, uh, just like I know when I started working out, I would get really sore like the first couple of weeks by just going like once a week. And then like I got to the point where like, okay, I could go a couple times a week and my body would recover faster. I, I would get used to the experience. And so when we're just getting started with mindfulness, really approaching with this curious exploration, starting small and starting with whatever, whatever works for us. And I just want to thank you so much for, for being here on this episode. Are there any like final bits of advice that you have for anybody who's listening who has ADHD and is interested in mindfulness? Are there any, any words of wisdom that you tend to pass along to folks that you work with? Well, I think what you said is, is what I would always kind of want to emphasize. And you said it beautifully that it's very much about finding the right fit for yourself and starting it with that sense of grace. You know, this may be difficult at the, at the beginning, doing it gradually, knowing and there may be, you know, bumps along the way, some aches and pains um, and that, you know, and, and finding what, you know, what you can uh, keep in your life right? Find that way. If, you know, some people can't sustain going to the gym, but maybe they got started in the gym. So maybe taking a class, but then what you do is you end up 
taking daily walks, right? So then you do a little bit of a mindfulness practice in a different way, maybe the informal practice over time. So I think it's just so important not to feel like I'm failing in mindfulness, but that, you know, it's not that you are the wrong fit for mindfulness. It's just that maybe you have to find the right mindfulness fit for who you are. Um, and that's such a big thing in ADHD too. It's not that you have to necessarily do work so hard in fitting yourself to the world, but also finding ways how the world can fit into who you are. Um, and, you know, and empowering people to, to have that stance. Um, the second thing I would say is that, you know, the, um, the big part of mindfulness is kindness and compassion. And sometimes people get really intimidated by the idea of meditation. And um, if you can even just start with this idea of kindness for yourself, mm. uh, even before you attempt doing uh, maybe more um, kind of formal meditation practice or learning more about mindfulness, just taking that aspect of, of mindfulness is, is how we relate to ourselves and start there. Just say, what if, what if I practice being more kind to myself? especially in the moments when they're hard. That can be a good entry into then being curious, you know, managing your attention a little differently in those moments, and, and hopefully then maybe exploring more. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Z, thank you for your work again. Thank you for being here. Lovely to meet you. Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. And everybody, thanks for listening and take care.